Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. Today, we talk about the Silicon Valley Bank and try, together with Hussam, to understand what happened, but most importantly, what are the consequences and lessons to learn for corporate treasurers. We could hardly do this one just by ourselves, so we invited the amazing Lisa Dukes. Lisa has had almost 20 years of experience in complex corporate organizations, amassing endless experience in innovation within treasury, corporate finance, and derivatives. In 2020, she was invited to join the United Kingdom's Foreign Exchange Committee, chaired by the Bank of England, and last year was also appointed as the United Kingdom Private Sector representative to the Global Ethics Committee. Last but not least, Lisa has also co-founded Dukes and King, a corporate finance and risk management boutique using that innovation to help corporates achieve their strategic objectives. Lisa is quite impressive. The conversation might get a bit technical at some point, but we made sure with Hussam to summarize and translate into our own words each section of the episode. In the episode of today, expect to learn what happened with the Silicon Valley Bank, the impact and importance of financial risk management, the main lessons that corporate treasurers can learn from this event and what they have to do in the future, what Lisa do in details with Dukes and Kings and her role with the FX Global Code of Conduct, and much more. If you are very new to Treasury, we highly recommend you to listen first to the following episodes so you can have a better understanding of the different terms we tackle in this one. Episode 8 to episode 14 of the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. They are short episodes between 8 and 10 minutes and provide a high-level overview of what is financial risk management, the different types of risk, where they come from, and how to mitigate them. Last note, before diving into our fascinating conversation with Lisa, we are now on LinkedIn. If you would like to reach out, suggest a topic, ask a question, or simply say hi, we will be happy to have you. Just look for Corporate Treasury 101 on LinkedIn. That will be us. With all that being said, please welcome Lisa Dukes. Lisa, can you explain us what exactly happened with the Silicon Valley Bank, please? There is a whole news and blockbuster event that we don't know much about. Can you please break it down for us? Yes, there, there are now lots of interesting articles and summaries of what happened, um, many of which seem to point to a few key components, including failures in interest rate management and poor regulatory oversight which ultimately led to a run on withdrawals and its subsequent collapse. SVB had a huge and highly concentrated deposit base, in addition to concentration customers from specialising in tech companies. Their deposits had grown significantly over the last few years following the pandemic, and they chose to invest a lot of that into much longer-dated US government bonds. Now, whilst... Those themselves are not necessarily risky without appropriate interest rate swaps to hedge the interest rate risk caused by that difference in duration that created a significant asset and liability mismatch. 
So as interest rates started to increase at the rate of knots that it has done, naturally the value of the bonds went down. And at the same time, that coincided with a tech recession when depositors needed back their money. Mm. So to honour the withdrawals, they needed to start selling those bonds, which crystallised the losses, essentially creating a perfect storm. And as you would expect, as the word of SVB's difficulties got out, more depositors tried to access their funds, which created a run on the bank. And that's where regulators had to step in to, a, to avoid it impacting the wider financial system. Whilst SVB was the 16th largest bank in the US, it wasn't recognised as a globally systemically important bank. Although I think it's fair to say that the impacts have been felt globally, with markets spooked enough to have a knock-on to the more strategically important credit suites, which needed to be rescued only a matter of days later. I suppose the only other loosely interesting point is that it's been highlighted around the quirks of accounting presentation and should accounting treatment drive commercial actions. There's very different accounting treatments for assets held to maturity versus those available for sale. And only the latter requires you to disclose gains and losses in the accounts and that perhaps masked or contributed to a failure to hedge, leaving them massively exposed to a levered interest rate position when the rates kind of increase. Okay. So it sounds very much like there was a, an alignment of planets, as we say in French. I'm not sure that's an expression, <laughs> but quite a lot of events that occurred provoking this uh, downfall and, and like shoot of events. You, you mentioned quite sometimes accounting and AFS. What are those exactly? Uh, AFS, so available for sale. There's two ways of recording them. So you can have available for sale or held to maturity. If you hold something to maturity, that sits on the balance sheet as, as it says on the tin, really, until the end of the life of those bonds. If you sell a single bond that is marked held for maturity, then you have to realise them all as available for sale, which is where the, the P&L volatility comes onto the balance sheet, uh, onto the P&L. Okay, so j just to help you understand here and make sure it's clear for us. When you hold an asset, it has an accounting value that might be different for from the market value. That would be the idea. And depending on where Correct. you sell it, you would, yeah, we would have a, a result which would be negative or positive depending on well the actual value at which you uh, at which you sell it compared to how it was written on your balance sheet. Is that correct? Yeah. So the the value at which you buy an asset for will obviously change over time. Yeah. And um, if if you are going to sell that before it matures or uh, reaches the end of its life, then you mark to market that position on your accounts. If you hold it to yeah. maturity, you don't have to mark to market that position. Okay. And so mark to market just for our audience is comparing the price of at which it's actually valued against how you how much you bought it or how much Correct. value the asset was valued when you bought it. Essentially, yes. Super clear. And so the, do you declare which bonds you're planning to hold to maturity and which ones you're gonna sell like ahead of time, or is it only at the point of sale? Like how does from accounting point of view, how do you while you're holding the bonds, how do you declare if they're Mark to maturity or not? Uh, for full disclosure, I am an accountant, but I am not active in uh, accounting <laughs> in a technical sense. But you do have to define 
at the point you purchase them, whether you're going to have it accounted for as available for sale or held to maturity. So you can't change that during the course. Super clear. So on top of the accounting rules that, that, that were in action here, you mentioned quite some uh, topics that are related to financial risk management. We, um, we had a full series on this uh, on, on the show, uh, but it's quite a long time ago now. Would you mind like refreshing our minds on what do you consider financial risk management is? No, absolutely. So for me, financial risk management covers the end-to-end process, including the identification, analysis, management, and reporting of all potential risks that an entity faces. Now, that could include market risk like FX, interests, or inflation, but also it could be credit, liquidity, operational, or legal risks, amongst others. Now, all risks, whether any action is taken or not, should still be captured, measured, and reported on, mm-hmm. and you should agree a strategy uh, to manage as appropriate to reduce that risk to an acceptable level. It's also key to ensure that the policy is challenged and, and viewed through the lens of the current market as well as changes to the business, or it can become rapidly outdated and not fit for purpose to cater for any forthcoming market challenges. So creating a policy that has a, a flexible framework also helps with that. And in that process, it's important to understand what the acceptable and unacceptable positions of those financial risks under management are. It's also key to consider the correlation between moves in different financial risks, like FX, uh, inflation or interest, as they can impact the companies in different ways. Some may offset and, and some may actually compound each other. Okay. And you, so you mentioned when explaining um, high level how the SVB event happened, that there was quite some failures in risk management. So leaking with what you just broke down, um, how do we link this to SVB? Is it because they didn't have those policies you just mentioned that are preventing this kind of events or at least mitigating them? Or what's the matter here? They did have interest rate hedges in place, but the difference between having the the deposits from their customers and the investments that they have made longer term, the difference between those two trades almost are different tenors. And obviously, each different tenor has an uh, its own interest rate assumptions behind them, and they can move in very, very different ways. So without having an interest rate risk management approach to match the difference in those two products, to make sure that any market moves were being offset either by the, the, the two instruments, but also any additional moves were counteracted by the interest rate hedging that would have meant there was less volatility going through and there was more certainty on ultimately the returns of SBB. That appears not to have been in place. So it sounds like the interest rates is what triggered most of it, right? Is, is that, that like was the final, like the straw, straw that broke the camel's back or as they say? I think it was a combination of lots of things, but from what I'd seen, um, it did contribute quite significantly. I mean, traditionally, as interest rates increase, the value of the longer dated US bonds decrease. So if you're not hedging that difference um, using derivatives or some other managing that basis risk, then you will be exposed. Now, over the last however many years, it's probably too many to count, but we've been in that is almost a zero interest rate environment. So it hasn't really 
made any difference. So whether people have been numb to it, that's uh, one possibility. But mm. the, the fundamental principles of risk management probably weren't followed as closely as they should have been. So, so on the just to touch on the interest rates point then, so what, what's happening globally with interest rates? I mean, clearly they've gone up. And we've already touched it, I think, in a previous episode, but maybe you could just remind everyone, like, what's happening in the trades globally, why they're going up, what's going on in the market uh, in general that, that caused this? Uh, so, yeah. so it's been a crazy few, well, few months or maybe even more, but mm. we've seen the most dramatic raises in global interest rates in over five decades in response to multi-year highs in inflation. Volatility as a result has become more elevated and we've seen major breakout spikes in both the UK and the US. And that's quite new to many in the market. And from an interest rate management perspective, this changed market backdrop needs considering in the overall approach to capital structure and choice of derivative. We're now reaching the point where central banks are potentially slowing down or, or reaching the pivot points. And I think Australia and Canada have noted that they are pausing. For most territories, we're now seeing, starting to see falling market expectations. So the yield curves have started to invert, which typically can occur pre a recession. The, the short dated yield curves are, are now closest to the steepest it's been in, in history, which probably doesn't bode that well. But coming back to the rising inflation, that's been largely as a comp- consequence of a few factors. Firstly, supply chain pressures and, and bottlenecks coming out of the pandemic and resulting restricted working practices from, from COVID. The non-USD countries, that's probably been aggravated by weaker currencies as well. Um, and there's also been volatility in commodities, in part, although not solely linked to the Ukraine war, but also the wider movements in oil and other uh, commodities. The difficulty in managing inflation is that the longer it lasts, the more people's expectations creep up and we see core inflation being badged as sticky. Um, and inflation can become very emotive. So governments and central banks are keen to address it quickly, which with monetary policy is most affected through increasing rates and tightening of money supply and credit conditions. And, and that's what we've been seeing recently. Okay. You, you mentioned quite sometimes this notion of um, volatility. Why does it increase when interest rates do? What, what's the link here for my, for my curiosity? So volatility is not linked to just interest rates. It's just a measure of, I suppose, market unrest and how the market perceives rates could go up and down in any specific market. Now, that could be interest, it could be FX, and it could be anything. So the higher the volatility, the the greater a risk premium the market is inferring in the underlying market, which if you were to buy an option, is um, makes options very expensive because the market okay. is more likely to be difficult or maybe thin liquidity as well impacting there. If it's very low volatility, then it's actually quite cheap to buy options because the market's not really expecting uh, the market to do a lot. Okay, so if I if I was to to put it in in simpler words, here volatility could be linked to uncertainty, right? Because of how uncertain the market is, the tools in order to hedge your risk against this volatility are more expensive because we don't know where it's going to go, and the providers of those services don't know where it's going to go, so they hedge themselves before helping others to hedge themselves by making the price of the instrument expensive. Is that 
Yeah, essentially, um, the higher the volatility in the market, the more likely or uncertain see, there is baked into the numbers. So um, there is a, a risk premium associated with trading in the market. Now, if you're hedging, that's fine. You, you're just locking in the certainty. But obviously, uh, there's different products utilized in the markets. Super clear. So if I could, if I could try and summarize in my my dumb brain uh, exactly what <laughs> so what we're basically saying is that inflation is going up generally uh, due to different factors coming out of the pandemic, the war, uh, causing currency uh, issues, overall increase in spending for whatever reason, driven inflation up, mm-hmm. for which governments and uh, central banks are raising interest rates to try and combat that, right? right? Now, what happened in the case of SVP, SVB is that they had all these bonds, which were long-term bonds, which were bought perhaps at a time when the interest rates were much lower, which kind of made sense. However, they didn't cover their backs with those because maybe they didn't think interest rates were going to go so high. So they didn't like adequately put risk measures in place. So when the interest rates kept going up and up and up and then hit a certain critical point, their bonds lost value, which got everyone scared, which made everyone go and take their money out of the bank. But then, you know, banks don't hold money or everyone's money all the time. Is that, is that like a, a monkey version of it? Uh, yeah, I think so. But it was there was also additional factors. So um, it coincided with the concentrated customer base that they had all at the same time mm. needed their money back because there was a tech recession. So uh, if everybody's asking for their money back, but where they'd deposited their money in long-term bonds, if that had decreased in value and they're less easy to liquidate, they crystallized losses from having to sell the bonds at a lower price than what they mm. bought them for. And then it, it just spirals. Spirals. And you get, mm. Yeah. So it's also the tech, the tech recession, or and all these tech companies having all these issues. They were coming in to take their deposits out, which also meant that SVB to get the money had to sell the bonds at a uh, at a loss. Correct. Yeah. Oh, okay. Very cool. That makes sense. Overall, what would they have done? What could they have done better to let's say manage that interest rate? How would you describe what would have been the correct risk management strategy? that they should have had in place? So, well, interest rate risk management in its purest form is managing the risk associated with capital. Now, that could be cash or debt or an offset between all of uh, the above. So, for example, if someone enters into a floating rate debt with maturity of three years, you might want to swap some or all of that floating rate interest to a fixed coupon or, or vice versa. But having or knowing what your underlying exposure is and matching that with the hedge that um, you're putting on to remove that volatility is typically what we mean by uh, interest rate risk management. Interest rates and all forms of risk management for that matter should be constantly assessed and modified to suit the changing shape of financial markets and also the business trajectory. That will include managing the primary risks. So that might be interest rates, could be FX, inflation, or, or others. And um, will involve managing the credit line risk. So making sure you maintain the ability to hedge going forward. Um, managing the counterparty risk. So 
making sure that counterparties on all sides are suitably, I suppose, uh, so counterparty lists can be to your customers or, or um, to your stakeholders. So for corporates, it would be the banks. So understanding those risks as well. The, there's liquidity and refinancing risks. So understanding that is is quite key as well. And also managing the strategy and economic risks that you're trying to enable and protect. I mentioned credit line risk, and um, it's worth remembering that credit line utilisation can be quite high for longer dated swaps. Speaking with a, a corporate hat on, you need to have very careful considerations and, and get a balance to that. I'm not a, a bank specialist, so I, I can't comment on how banks go around and, and manage their risks. Um, but for corporates, I think one of the most interesting things is not necessarily managing the here and now, but managing where the business could be and how you can actually shape and enable that strategy. Okay, um, so you touched upon a, a very interesting point here, Lisa, which is the consequences for the corporates, right? And how how they can learn about this event. But before going into this and remaining a little bit 360 degrees view, uh, are there any other wider risks that should be considered? Yeah, there are probably many, but uh, immediately. <laughs> um, so you immediately jump to mind to consider in the context of overall capital rate management and being inflation risk and cross-currency interest rate risk. Probably both worth a session in their own right. But ultimately, they follow similar principles to what we've already discussed, trying to manage the underlying exposure on a long-term basis in a credit-efficient manner. However, as things are never simple, there are always other intricacies and correlations to consider. So, for example, cross-currency opportunities or even necessities, they're often usually for larger notional or where an organisation can tap a market in multiple currencies or on the inflation side, perhaps where a company is structurally exposed to inflation by considering inflation essentially as a real rate rather than a nominal rate, there may be other opportunities to secure effective hedges of their holistic exposure. But I suppose the key point is that whilst it's okay to have a market view, the goal is to manage the risk efficiently to enable business strategy, which in simple terms means ensuring liquidity, the future P&L, and that the financial covenants are managed and understood. And, and that will be vastly different for a leveraged business versus a, a low levered business where the sensitivity and impact is far smaller. There are also a few structural aspects of the market to consider in terms of approach on execution and market skew that you could potentially benefit from, but that's probably not one for today. A very, a very neat, but uh, why not for a future episode, actually, <laughs> to be quite uh, quite on point. And maybe something that um, we, we didn't discuss earlier, but uh, that I'm thinking about now. We talk about, about risk, uh, impacts, uh, consequences, bad consequences. Are there any opportunities out of this? And uh, I'm asking myself this question because you might have very cash-rich company. So once they have sorted out the counterparty risk aspect, which is, well, your bank can basically fail. Or it's likely that you get your money back from the government or, or, or in, in, in any ways. But are there opportunities, for instance, interest rate rising? If you want to invest, that's much more profitable for you. Or are there other things that we do not obviously think of when we're in such a context, but that could be an opportunity? Absolutely. Wherever there's risks, there's opportunities. And um, it's making sure you're positioned for 
a position of strength to be able to manage the risk, but also capture any opportunities as they arise. If, like I said, if you have lots of cash, you can deposit that and get a, a greater return. So that that's great for you. But also, the whilst the the markets themselves are very volatile, there are other opportunities. So people who need to hedge inflation, for example, it makes sense for them to lock in inflation now um, at their all-time highs. So having policies and structures to enable you to manage risk effectively, but also react proactively to market opportunities as they arrive is is very important as a risk manager. So Lisa, what's the um, the wider implications like in the broader market for banks or corporates as that's come out of all of this? So it's likely to accelerate the credit tightening cycle, which will obviously impact corporates, particularly those with less favourable credit, or they will likely suffer more in terms of price and liquidity. The general expectation is the credit spreads to widen substantially, so it's important to consider what de-risking can be done in terms of near-term capital needs. And that should also consider the use and merits of derivatives as part of that exercise. Interestingly, we've actually been exploring interest rate structures for corporates and looking for ways to help get certainty over the near term, but at swap rates much lower actually than, than current rates. It's a very interesting process and probably will appeal to a number of corporates, including those with higher in leverage or near term financing needs or perhaps lower credit strength. But I, I think it's clear that innovative or more dynamic solutions are out there to meet some of the additional complications that are coming out of the the market events that we're seeing. Very interesting. So generally, like, so banks are maybe less likely to to lend um, longer term loans. There's there's going to be a tightening overall of, is it something similar to 2008 where banks just shut down? Do you see, foresee that happening out of this? Your guess is good as mine, I think. Um, I think there have been very specific reasons why SVB and Signature and Credit Suisse have all got into difficulties. And it's always important to avoid complacency. Clearly, the, the new raft of bank failures may be a bit of a wake-up call for the regulations currently in place. For example, are they still fit for purpose given the changing technologies over the years? Perhaps the flow and ease of transfer of money is materially quicker and easier globally. So if there is a run on the bank, it's very easy for someone to go on the computer and withdraw their money. And many of the financial stress tests are applied according to size and jurisdiction. But the shockwaves felt that impacted Credit Suisse's market price, those shockwaves came from bank failure that wasn't considered systemically important. Uh, so will that change going forward? And I will leave that to those who are more informed than me. Super clear. So Lisa, I, I'm, I'm quite new to corporate treasury, right? So that, that's kind of the idea of the show that, uh, that owns the corporate treasurer and I'm just here to, to learn more and, and then act as, the, as a listener that, that might have questions. So one of the things I'm taking away from this in general is that I mean, a bank to a corporate treasurer is a, is a third party, right? So when we talk about counterparty risk to a corporate, the counterparty to a, a company is, is the bank. So banks failing is like, well, your counterparty risk is, is a risk level may have just changed. Is, is that a fair way to look at it? Like is how, how are corporate treasurers looking at this event and perhaps adjusting or learning from it internally? Uh, 
so I would argue that nothing new. Um, we should always plan and be proactive as risk managers. And risk management is not something that you do after the event. Many of the recent failures with SVB or, or even those bad recently as crypto failures have had very similar themes. They've had concentrated customer base combined with arguably poor risk management principles. But regardless, I think everybody should be treating SVB and others as a, a wake-up call. SVB's downfall might not impact um, everybody directly, but we now have time to plan for that next event, which might. So I would look to make use of that time. In terms of counterparty risk and, and how that should be considered a, as a corporate treasurer, I think many will be surprised to know that bank failures are actually surprisingly common. There's been well over 500 of them in the US since the turn of the millennium. Many of them wow. occurred after the global financial crisis, but even in more benign periods, banks have gone bust, I think between 2011 and 2020, banks have been collapsing at a rate of around two a month. But I suppose what makes Silicon Valley and Signature Bank special is not only their size, because, I mean, they're the second and third largest bank failures in US history, but also how much time has elapsed since a bank before them failed. So prior to SVB, uh, the last bank to fail was in October 2020, which was the second longest stretch on record. And I think that's why people not necessarily have been becoming complacent, but perhaps uh, need to dust off their counterparty procedures. To ensure any process is fit for purpose, including any approach to counterparty risk, one should always be considering the materiality and adopting a pragmatic approach whilst acknowledging that there'll always be some level of accepted risk tolerated. It's not always going to be at the top of the list. And I suppose any approach should also consider the time um, that needs to be allocated versus the actual risk and incremental benefits. For corporates, um, a typical risk counterparty risk management is highly dependent on their exposure and size, but would typically include uh, a process to select and pre-screen banks, perhaps linked to minimum ratings criteria, a focus on cash concentration, and diversification between counterparties, but also territories, and then other factors like use of secure methods of holding cash like repos and similar. And I think following any event like the SVB event or, or even actually on the back of new information, such as new published stress tests, I would anticipate treasurers to be doing a review to, to look at updating existing data and evaluating whether it is material. And if it is, then looking for additional data points to validate that, uh, maybe through a traffic light review. You can look at additional market pointers such as CDS behavior, so that's credit default swaps, um, share and bond price performance versus what the expectations would suggest, but also the short-term ratings outlook and the long-term ratings outlook, as well as the bank capital and solvency ratios coming out of the stress test themselves. And then on the back of that review, everyone should be considering whether it's right to be taking action. Uh, if there is a material risk, it might be that um, it was a great exercise to do, but there is no significant risk of loss of cash or, or other assets. But if there is a material risk, they can look to sweep cash to counterparties or territories with less perceived risk or 
They should also be reviewing bilateral lines of credit to evaluate whether they should be drawn. Or if there is greater levels of risk, look at holding less cash, whether that's deferring receivables, paying suppliers early um, in exchange for goodwill or financial benefit. Okay. Super clear, Lisa. Thanks a lot. What's, what are the, the actions that's, let's say I'm a corporate treasurer, right? And I'm responsible for my whole treasury department right now. And I'm like, I'm seeing this event. What can I do now? What are the tools that I can leverage if that ship hasn't sailed yet? Uh, what are the instruments I can leverage, the technology perhaps? Um, what, what would you recommend exactly to prevent this from affecting my treasury department too much? But you could argue that that uh, ship has sailed, as, as you said. But um, <laughs> we recently saw the biggest single day downward move in two-year US swaps, um, although that, now some of that has reversed. But interest rate volatility does remain high, which could be both good and bad. And whilst rates are high, they could still get higher. I think for a corporate, they should be reassessing what levels of interest rate risk are acceptable and looking at sensitivities for both operational forecast and interest ranges. I would be looking at refinancing risk. So thinking about in interest rates, but also the counterparty aspect, looking at maturities and just a general need for the next, say, three years. What actions can be taken to mitigate the risk now? Are, are there any term extensions, for example? And even if action is only taken on a proportion of the refinancing coming up in the next few years, that will help ease future months if further stresses are felt. I think another big one is to consider working capital levers. Mm. They can really boost liquidity and ease any sensitivities. And it's also key to look at the cost of capital tied up within that, uh, which yeah. actually becomes considerably more or more meaningful when rates are elevated. So when we were in a, a zero interest rate uh, environment, it was clearly next to nothing to, to consider that holding inventory could be now close to 5% to 10% of holding cost. So uh, understanding that is key, but also understanding the terms of any agreements um, so that you know the impact to operational financial covenants if there is an event. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. We, we recently had um, an episode with the leadership of, of TIS and uh, we talked about the strategic role uh, the corporate treasurer had developed throughout the last years and how more and more strategic it will become and influential within the company. Um, and with the shift to the next economic phase, should we consider corporate treasury uh, differently? Like how can corporate treasury departments become more resilient and then influence more how a company is resilient in general, its financial mm -hmm. statement and financial robustness? Uh, I might start sounding like a broken record, but I, I think it's easier to be resilient if you're prepared. And with a step change from the low interest rate environment, perhaps a step change to a more active and proactive risk management approach is becoming increasingly invaluable. It's important not just to accept status quo, which may mean not just accepting existing policies and controls. Uh, for me, it's the right time to be taking a fresh look at the approach uh, and make sure that you're prepared for any eventuality. Run sensitivities, but also sensitivities on the both the risks and the opportunities with additional stresses that you wouldn't ordinarily consider. 
If one thing has become very evident over the last few years is that previous sensitivities have become a reality more often than they should do or even than is expected. So try to put yourself in a position of strength to be ready for whatever comes next. So can I ask, um, you mentioned earlier as well of all these bank failures and whatnot, and um, but you only mentioned really US. Is there some material difference between regulation between the US and the UK that's showing more failures there versus the UK? I don't know, actually. I haven't looked into the, the val- uh, I haven't looked into the data, but the the banking industry generally is very, very different in the US uh, than it is in the UK. Obviously, they're, they're monitored differently. So I would anticipate a far lower number in the UK, but I would be very happy to look at that data. So, and when you say they're different, like, is it more stringent in the UK? Is it like, are banks less greedy in the UK? <laughs> like, what's the, <laughs> what's like, if there was a difference, what would be driving that in your opinion, knowing the markets? Um, good question. And the UK people are smarter. That's what it means. But the Yorkshire people. Um, <laughs> I think it tends to be more concentrated or industry specific potentially in the US, which is where SVB has mm. perhaps um, got into difficulties. Um, obviously, SVB had a, a branch in the UK, but they mm. are um, uh, covered, if you like, by the, the Bank of England and the, the, the stress testing here. The stress tests are very jurisdiction and um, size specific how they undertake stress tests and whether they are a, a globally a systemically important bank so i i don't have to hand the between the us uk and the us but there are definitely differences in the way that they're focused and also sheer size there obviously the, the markets themselves there there is a great need for more banks i'm sure in um catering for different areas and the different regions of the us which you don't have that same uh, scale of different re- regions in the uk and um, maybe less globally but uh, i mean we, we are talking since the beginning of uh, the, the tech aspect into into these rights and maybe the, the tech development at least deposits and cash availability in the us well it's the silicon valley bank right so mm-hmm. the tech industry there is much more developed and with the with the pandemic we had this booming growth of of tech companies that well is stemming from the us and then of course develops to the uk and the rest of europe but I guess that has a, a little role to play in that as well, right? I would imagine so, yes. No, I think you made a really good point around the, the fact that in the UK, I had never, growing up there, I never seen like sector-specific banks the same way, I think. Mm-hmm. Indeed, you just had the big banks that, you know, okay, like the fintech market in, in the UK is huge, for example, but they don't have like, there's no fintech bank necessarily. They all bank with, I guess, the normal ones business opportunity here. I have to think about it. they not. But I mean, around the, around the concept around regulations as a whole, Lisa, then, so maybe not just being country specific, but we talked before, actually in this, uh, in this podcast about rating agencies um, and how they play a critical role in, in these kind of situations. And as I've, We've talked a lot about what can corporates do better internally. 
Um, is there anything that corporates can look externally for better guidance from things like rating agencies or are rating agencies acting differently now? Like, has that affected them? So whilst ratings and outlooks are helpful, some of the other measures that I mentioned earlier, so share price, bond price, CDS behavior, they're usually a better barometer of getting a dynamic snapshot to, to manage counterparty strength or, or in fact, weakness. Um, ratings tend to be a little backward looking, a little bit too backward looking to catch systemic bank default. That being said, having a detailed review cycle with challenge supported with all of the factors that you've got and allows you to do a more fulsome review. It should be noted that some of the other metrics can be a bit patchy, so it's usually more on a best endeavours basis. But there are various data streams out there that can either be built or or using outsourced information to support on that. Um, but again, from a from a corporate lens, um, it, it's important to review it in terms of a longer-term objective for risk versus reward. You, you can pay for all of this data, but if the risk isn't that big for your company, then it's, it's probably um, not warranted cost. Makes a lot of sense. Any... Anything else, Lisa, you would like to to add um, and to tackle when we it comes to the lessons from the SVB downfall? I think we've covered a lot already. Um, Definitely. I think, <laughs> I, think, I think one thing that has surprised me, especially coming out of the several years of low interest rate environments, was a recent survey that showed that less than half of European corporates had over 50% of fixed rate interest cover. We remain in a challenging period. Uh, we've come through the UK crisis and now SVB highlighting the risk associated with lack of risk management. Interest rates are still high. Doesn't mean you should rush out to um, convert everything to fix now, but there are likely ways to proactively plan and using derivatives appropriately to enable a much smoother route and de-risking that route going forward. Yeah, 100%. It's super interesting. It goes back to the to the policy aspect that you mentioned at the beginning of this episode. And usually in corporate treasury and corporate treasury departments, we have a, a treasury policy where the mix of floating versus fixed interest rates, um, loan and debts is, is clearly defined, right? But we might have seen corporates, well, either not having limits at all or completely overlooking them because we're in such a period of, of low interest rates. Mm-hmm. Super clear. Lisa or Gail, maybe one of you to answer this. Like, is this oversight, quote unquote, of the risk related to um, long-term bonds, for example, when floating versus fixed and whatnot, is that like, is that complacency? And uh, and let or I don't want to say incompetence, but but complacency, or is that just that the risk environment has drastically changed suddenly? And and obviously it'll take time to start hedging against that, right? Because I mean, like you you've mentioned a lot of times, quite rightly, Lisa, is that it's risk to reward of of mm-hmm. everything you do. So you can hedge everything, but if the risk is not there, then you're going to spend the money to hedge it, right? So the risk profiles also change with the drastic spikes in interest rates. Every time, you know, the, the Fed in the U.S., for example, comes out with a new interest rate, it typically is not what anyone's expecting. <laughs> you know, when people expect it to go up, it goes down, and people expect it to go down, it goes up. Is it just the environment that we're in that it's just hard to do so, and companies are trying to balance the risk to, to cost? 
or would you just say this was just oversight and complacency? I think yeah. there is a balance. So post the, the global financial crisis and the, the, the resulting zero interest rate environment, many are perhaps numb to having to manage interest rate risk. Maybe some haven't seen high interest rates, so that's another thing to mm. consider. But the com combination of central bank raising and the recent periods of volatility has definitely starkly woke many up to, to needing to manage it properly. I think there is a balance between active and reactive risk management. Maybe to illustrate, maybe you've heard recently that a project couldn't progress because the debt rates were too high. By planning early, the project could have been de-risked and enabled to proceed by securing a rate using interest rate derivatives. Now, there are clearly a balance of other considerations and exposures to consider, including the what-ifs. But that is the difference between active and reactive risk management and balancing having that that governance structure, the policies and the frameworks ready to react to both risks. But we discussed opportunities earlier and having that balance to enable the business rather than react to problems as they occur. I suppose those principles also then apply to enabling M&A strategy or large-scale capital projects. People may have heard of deal contingent structures, and I suppose managing in this way is very similar. You, you need to know the materiality, you need to know the risk, but you need to have the tools and the frameworks ready to adapt. And I think when I, when I said plan now for a position of strength, that's what I was getting at ultimately. You don't know what's coming, but you need to be able to re react to the good and bad, um, dependent on the extent of the opportunity or risk that comes your way. Lisa, thanks a lot for walking us through both the downfall of the SVB, uh, the impact for corporate treasurers, the lessons they can draw and learn from it. How about uh, you tell us a little bit more about you? Um, what do you do at Dukes and Kings? How do you help corporate treasurers in regards to corporate treasury in general? But I think you, you guys are really focused on end-to-end -end innovation and optimization. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I'm not sure we've got time to give you the full lowdown on what DKD, but I'll uh, try to give you a few sound bites and helpful snippets. Sounds great. So, so I'm joined in DK by Chris King, perhaps in the name. Uh, we can work yeah. together. Quite we convinced. Have, it, it was, yeah. Um, so we've worked together for a long time and between us, we've had over 40 years of corporate finance experience between us, which has mainly focused on developing and implementing innovative structures across a range of corporate finance activities. But our core focus falls into two key areas. Firstly, using derivatives and financing structures to enable or accelerate strategy. That would cover the use of pre-hedging approaches to M&A and, and near-term financing, for example. We also think about capital structure, including working capital, more holistically than perhaps normal. And by that, I mean thinking about the business strategy. There's a focus on growth. I, there's typically two key aspects. Firstly, organic growth consumes cash through working capital, and we consider what could be done now to mitigate that. And then secondly, where there's growth through M&A, looking at reducing the need for equity in part or even in its entirety, which is usually considered very helpful. And building up a, a working capital arsenal takes time uh, and typically needs some lateral thinking and consideration of wider stakeholders. 
But ultimately, whatever route we do, we're trying to bring together the business objectives and map that out to changing financial markets to optimise the outcome. And that will usually, but not always, be looking at approaches beyond the traditional, considering options, both bought and sold, to help facilitate more bespoke credit-efficient structures that address the business's risk profile. We also focus a lot on the future trajectory uh, and where the business could be seek to manage future risks and seek to put the business in a position of strength or at least not in a position of weakness. So I understand from uh, the list of activities you have and you do, you must have quite some work lately. <laughs> <laughs> there has been quite a lot of interest in what we do and um, we've got some great connections and uh, relationships across uh, markets, which uh, is it's very encouraging and we're working with some great corporates at the moment. Makes a lot of sense. I read somewhere that you guys are on the FX Global Code of Conduct Committee. That sounds very prestigious and fancy. What, what does that mean and what do you do there? So in 2020, I became a member of the UK's FX Joint Standing Committee and that's chaired by the Bank of England. And in 2022, I was appointed as the UK's private sector representative of the Global FX Committee. And for both committees, I'm an advocate and voice for the corporate buy side and uh, an active in encouraging my fellow treasurers and corporates to understand the benefits of adopting the FX Global Code of Conduct. Now, for those that don't know, the FX Global Code um, is a great example of how we can scrutinize ourselves in the way that we operate. It doesn't look to impose any addi additional legal or regulatory obligations. But instead, it's there to promote integrity and an effective function FX market, which it does by applying a single code proportionately for each market user, whether that's buy-side corporates or sell-side banks, where actually some of the principles are more applicable. In my view, there's a four key benefits for corporates to get involved, and that's it, it provides a proportional best practice framework, a governance structure that everyone can use and look to without it being regulation. It's a one-stop shop for a policy build, which is always helpful for treasurers. It helps set aspirations or areas that can be developed or targeted as companies grow or change. And it's a great tool. Um, it's a great training tool for new members of the team. And it gives boards and shareholders, any stakeholders, actually, the comfort that the right governance is in place. By signing up, you're evidencing a deeper investment in governance um, and making sure that all employees have the correct level of knowledge. And it also helps level the playing field, giving corporates and the wider buy side uh, a more equal voice. So I would encourage anyone to find out more. Uh, where FX is concerned, it's the G and EFG where, I, where I'm concerned. We will definitely put all the links in the description so people can, can know and, and check them out. Can you maybe walk us through, uh, I guess it would be more related to Jux and King, but if it's if it can be linked to the FX Global Code of Conduct, with great pleasure. Can you walk us through a use case maybe of a project you did for a client or an entity related to risk management? Sure. I suppose a, a recent example would be managing capital structure, interest rate management, probably quite apt to help mitigate near-term covenant pressures. We looked at structures to ensure near-term earnings were protected and used option volatility, which was high, to generate value to better protect the nearer term, uh, utilising the longer term accepted risk. 
we're able to look at structures significantly below market reference rates to give them that near-term certainty, which worked very well in the situation and importantly created a great deal of long-term stability for the business to then focus on other processes in the knowledge that the near-term rates were secured. So that's the type of almost bespoke project or, or, or things that we look at. It's really looking for um, solutions to very specific risks that a corporate might be facing or fund for that matter. Lisa, anything else you would like to add on the different topics we touched upon? No, I don't think so. I think it may be helpful to summarise. Um, if you haven't noticed already, things have changed dramatically. Um, Volatility is on the increase. So be aware of that in your approach to sensitivities, but also consider how you approach markets and time and timing are even more critical than normal. Many market participants and commentators are signaling that the next 12 months or so will be very challenging and we're likely to see periods of distress. So it's key to start planning for that now whilst there is still some relative calm in the markets. So maybe a few things to consider there. Um, Look at evaluating liquidity needs today, but also in 12 to 18 months from now, uh, perhaps look at refinancing early to remove that risk. Remember to consider what market phase we're in, in any approach to the market. Review policies, procedures and controls now to, to make sure that you could survive a downturn. Prepare for what you would do in that event, because being prepared is usually half the battle. Also, evaluate whether you've got the right team and resource to get you through a challenging period. But the required skill sets are usually quite different. I think the final wrap-up is to plan early. If there's still time, we should be nimble and attentive to markets, while still considering the status quo, but remembering that different periods, different markets mean different risks and different approaches. So it might not make sense to be rigid as to what's been done in the past. Most of all, have fun and try and learn something new, even though it might be challenging. Yeah. Okay. Super clear. Thank you so much. Um, if people would like to know more about you, uh, Dukes and King, or the FX Global Code of Conduct, where should they go? I think it's the first point if they reach out to me or us on LinkedIn, um, mm-hmm. we can connect from there. That's perfect. And we'll put all the links into the show notes of the episode. Lisa? Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you.